The news um, that we are accustomed to getting about the church these days is typically bad, right? Getting used to that? Uh, if you were to ask somebody about what's the state of the American church, the response is typically going to be, it's in bad shape. Let me tell you or just kind of remind you of some of the things that you know. Uh, we've heard in two consecutive Pew Research um, uh, research, what am I trying to say, research studies, and I've included them in your notes, that the Christian church in America has been in a steady state of decline. Okay? In 2007, uh, the survey showed that 30% of Americans claimed to be born-again evangelical Christians. 30%, 3 in 10. In 2021, that number was down to 24%. A 6% decline in just 14 years. Last week, this same research group uh, released another report where they were modeling religious trends, and it indicated that if those trends continue in the U.S., that Christianity would decline by another 14% in just two decades. Um, the past few years have been really disappointing on another level. We have seen time and time again uh, big-name pastors and leaders and uh, sort of these, the big celebrity Christian folks disappointing us, scandal after scandal, failure after failure. Right now, we have even whole denominations like the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, that are really in disarray, uh, just fraught with infighting and scandal, uh, even prompting some investigations that have largely rep reported largely in abuse culture. Uh, we've seen the reemergence of Christian nationalism, which is a conflating of faith and nation. Uh, and this has been, it's been troubling to me especially, but it has triggered investigations or ideas within evangelicalism that we need to have a bit of an internal reformation because people don't understand what evangelical means. They think it's simply a right-wing voting block, and they don't understand that evangelical means for the gospel. This is getting the church, the evangelical church, to just look for a reformation within. We also see then progressive Christianity, another troubling movement, which simply tries to accommodate the church, its teachings, and its teachings to the culture. Let's just shave off all the hard edges that don't agree with culture and just make it fit. I'll tell you that's no kind of Christianity. I'll also tell you it's no place that a person stays. It's usually just an off-ramp on their road to full deconstruction. We also uh, have, I think, uh, in our country, a distortion of the First Amendment, uh, of our Constitution, which really protects from two things. On one hand, it protects from a state religion, which we want to be protected from. We want conversions to come as a matter of conviction, not constraint. But it also protects the free exercise of religion, or is supposed to. But that last one is one that I find is, is being regarded less and less. In fact, I think they've switched around a prep, preposition there. Instead of protecting the free exercise of religion, they seem to be protecting the culture from any religion, is how it's sort of being practiced today. And I could go on and on about other alarming reports about the rate at which uh, churches are closing their doors or the rate at which pastors are leaving the ministry. During the pandemic, it was 70%. Seven in 10 pastors said during the pandemic they were looking to do something other than pastor. Or we could talk about the general aging of the church in America too. 
Um, we're really blessed here at Bethel. You look across the room and you see a lot of just multi-generational folks. We see a lot of ages here. Not so in a lot of churches in the lower 48. You go to church in the lower 48 and you look around and it's kind of gray hairs as far as the eye can see. And uh, it prompted a friend of mine one time to say, when I look across my church and I look at the tops of people's heads, it looks like we're a bunch of Q-tips. If that offended you, it was my friend who said it and not I. (laughs) We need Q-tips and we need bald babies at the same time. And bald guys in between too. So this is the bad news we're accustomed to, right? Welcome to church this morning. Here's all of the bad news. A truckload of it. And I could go on, there is more, uh, but I won't. And, and I want to tell you something that may surprise you. This news, these studies, these, this modeling, these reports do not alarm me. They do not make me fearful that somehow the church may fail or falter. How can I say that? How do I know that? Because of a promise that Jesus made to Peter 2,000 years ago. When he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And by the way, the rock he's talking about is not Peter here, it's the profession that Peter has made. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that rock I will build my church, Jesus says. On that profession of faith, on that gospel articulation, the church will be built. And I think we need to be reminded of this. At this present moment in our culture, we need to be reminded of this. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that Jesus' promise to build his church wasn't just rhetoric. It wasn't hyperbole. He wasn't just giving lofty language to something. The book of Acts shows us the rise of the Christian church against circumstances that were a lot bleaker than what we're looking at right now. And so we get to argue with our own souls based on the precedent of God's faithfulness in the past as we see Christ's promise to Peter fulfilled in the the book of Acts, the rise of the Christian church. So with that, we're going to get our bearings here. And so if you want to open to Acts chapter 1. In the New Testament, uh, we have, basically you could break the New Testament into two nearly equal parts. We have the Gospels, right? Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then beginning with, and they talk about, of course, the life and the ministry of Jesus. And then beginning with Romans, we have letters concerning the churches that emerged after Christ's ascension. And these are two nearly equal parts. And then connecting them, we have this unique book of Acts, which functions as a hinge and a bridge sort of from one Uh, to the other, between the Gospels and the letters. And one of the ways, it's been said, one of the ways to best appreciate the book of Acts is to try to imagine the New Testament without it. In fact, that's a great way to think about any book that you're studying or any particular passage that you're reading in the Scripture is to ask, if we didn't have this, what might we be missing? How would our faith be somehow less communicated to us if if this were absent? And um, so let's just kind of run through that mental exercise together, all right? It would go something like this. Without the book of Acts, you would suddenly find yourself, you would have read about the ascension of Christ at the end of the Gospels. And the next thing you know, some guy named Paul is writing a letter 
to this religious gathering in Rome. And you would immediately be forced to deal with all of these questions, such as, who's Paul? Where did this guy come from? And how did this this story of Jesus get all the way from Jerusalem to Rome? 2,500 miles by car, by the way. And they, of course, didn't have a car. But how does it get from Jerusalem to Rome? Um, Who are these gatherings of religious folk in Corinth and Thessalonica and Galatia, Colossae, Ephesus? Who are are these gatherings? How did they get there? Right? And this one would get me. Why is this guy, Paul, who's writing to all of them, kind of bossy? You know, how does he get that? How does Paul know who these folks are, or how does he even know who Jesus is, for that matter? We would be left with all of those questions. We would be speculating, wondering, not knowing. It would be a completely disintegrated New Testament without the key core book of Acts. It integrates the Gospels and the Epistles. It gives us the transition from the life and ministry of Christ to the rise of the Christian church that Christ promised to build. And so that's going to serve as our, um, not just our sermon title this morning, but our series title, The Rise of the Christian Church. And I hope that's an encouragement to your souls. Um, I think this is going to be an awesome study. I am personally very excited about it. It's been, I kind of hate to admit this, but I will. I haven't done a very thorough study on the book of Acts um, since my time at Biola back in the late 90s. In fact, I think Holly Pivick and I might have been in the same survey of Acts class by Harold Dollar. So anyways, that was a long time ago. And I, so I'm really excited to dig into this, this book again. And I, particularly because of how I opened. We're so used to hearing the bad news. We're so used to the reports and the statistics and the investigations and the scandals and the struggles of the church. And it can, be, it can feel very defeating And we need to be reminded of the rise of the Christian church. We're ordinary men and women, just like you and me, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and learn to be effective witnesses for Christ. And they got to witness against all odds the rise of the Christian church. So as we do this, here's some things I think you can expect. Number one, I think we're going to be reminded that God keeps his promises. Just as he said to Peter, I will build my church We see that he did. And we may need to remind ourselves of the second part of what Jesus said, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We might need to tell our own souls that right now. I also think we're going to be encouraged as we're reintroduced to the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God is triune. And unfortunately, in a lot of conservative Christian churches like ours, The trinity that is practiced is Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. And we oftentimes neglect, and to our detriment, the living power of God, the Holy Spirit. We need to be Trinitarian. Not falsely um, fixated on any one member of the Trinity, but fully Trinitarian. I think we're also going to be really inspired as we go through this series to see again the remarkable life change that is produced by the gospel. We get to see someone like Peter, the denier, the coward, the one who hid, the one who betrayed. 
become the leader of the Christian church. We get to see someone like Paul, a persecutor of the movement the way, become its chief apologist. We get to see life transformation. Uh, So I think that's going to be very sweet. So let's get into some of our orienting details. Who's the author here? Well, it's Dr. Luke. How do we know this? Because the signature is undiscernible, so it's got to be a physician, right? It's got to be. Actually, there's no signature on this thing. He doesn't name himself here, but he leaves behind sort of um, uh, evidence of a signature, so to speak. Um, We know that this book is written uh, by Luke as a companion to the gospel of Luke. Uh, In fact, it's often called a sequel. You can call it a sequel as long as you understand it's not a new story. It's a continuation of the same story. You know, the way that maybe the two towers is a continuation of Fellowship of the Rings. This is one story. This is part two of the one story. And that's really what Paul, or what uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, is is doing here. Um, Interestingly enough, he is not one of the original 12 disciples He is, however, the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and then just a close friend of his. There's a deep affection, one for the other, that that shows up throughout the scriptures. Um, And what we find in the Gospel of Luke, kind of how he sets out, he tells us that he serves like an investigative journalist, pulling together evidence, corroborating things, and putting together what he calls an orderly account. And he does much the same in Uh, in Acts, uh, where he's not just talking about an orderly account of the life of Christ, but chronicling the rise of the Christian church for us. And so let's look at Acts 1 here. It says, in my former book, here we go, sequel, we know there was something that preceded it. In my former book, Theophilus, we'll get to that, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So right out, of the way, right out of the gates, as we start reading Acts, we know it's connected to an earlier work. And when we go to the Gospel of Luke, we can hear some of the same voicing, some of the same verbiage, the same tone, a similar purpose, and even the same recipient, which links these two books together. So if you would, turn over to Luke 1, and we'll catch up on some of that real quick. Andrew, could I trouble you for some water? It's going to be an issue in a moment. (laughs) Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So here we see all of these similarities and even this same recipient, Theophilus. So let's ask that question. Who is Theophilus? Thank you, brother. I want you to think on that for a moment. Talk amongst yourselves while I hydrate. (laughs) Who is Theophilus? Uh, Sounds like a Greek fraternity or an unknown boy band of the first century, right? Who is Theophilus? Some have suggested that because Theophilus means beloved of God, 
that it's kind of a placeholder name for any Christian or every Christian who might read this work. And, and that's possible, but I think it's um, unlikely or not best. And, and the reason I don't follow that particular position um, is because in Luke, of this little ascription that's attached to it, most excellent Theophilus, which kind of points to a person. Uh, this, this use of most excellent was a common way of referring to somewhere in kind of a, someone in sort of an honorific way, like uh, your majesty, your honor, your holiness, something like that. Um, I was thinking about it this week. I don't have any of those honorific titles. No one comes up to me on Sunday and says, good morning, your holiness. <laughs> and I, please don't do that, actually. That would really mess, mess me up if you did. But um, my wife has kind of a funny nickname for, for me, which I'll share with you. Um, Amy calls me, you ready for this? She calls me Chief. Chief. Which I kind of like, except that I think she's really poking fun at me. I think it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, like you only think you're in charge around here, you know? And she, I mean, she uses it all the time, probably five to one. If she calls me Eric, it's like, oh, I did something wrong. What, <laughs> what did I do? But she calls me that all the time. And then the funny moments are we'll be in some public place. We'll, we'll be at Costco or at Fred Meyer or, or even worse, some, some place where there's lots of women. And then she'll say, hey, chief. And then the women look at me like, they start giving me dirty looks. Like I make her call me that or something. <laughs> um, I don't make her call me that. All right, back to Acts here. No, that's enough about where, where am I? When was this book written? People want to know. Sure you do. Some of you are checking your fantasy football team right now to see how they're doing. Consensus on when this thing was written. 8062, 8063, somewhere in there. And here's how we get that. One of the biggest moments in the Christian church, early first century, of course, is the fall of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple. This happens in AD 70. For a book to be written about the rise of the Christian church and have no mention of the fall of Jerusalem is, you know, nonsense. So we know it's before that. Uh, secondly, uh, the Apostle Paul's death uh, as a martyr in AD 68, no mention there. Again, Paul's close friend, traveling companion, source of information. To not mention that, so we go before 68. And then in AD 64, we have the persecution of Nero, intense persecution. Um, and, and actually what happens there, basically there was this fire that uh, burned up much of Rome, and Nero blamed the Christians as a means of kind of getting rid of them. And there's no mention of that either. So with the absence of those three things, we just kind of keep backing up to our point of AD 62, 63, somewhere in there. Um, what's the setting and the purpose? Well, it really has apologetic value. And we're kind of told that at the beginning of Luke in, in Acts, that he's writing this sort of one book in two parts to give assurances to this fellow, uh, Theophilus. So he's trying to assure him. Assure him of what, you ask? I think two things. Um, number one, this is clear, that he would know that his faith is well-founded. It's researched. It was investigated. Things were corroborated. So well-researched and documented, it's something worth believing in. And then secondly, and I hold this a little more open-handed, so this is more or less theory, um, and John Stott has popularized this, he believes that Theophilus is very likely an important Roman figure, thus the title, most excellent, 
and maybe even a patron of Luke who, who maybe funded the, this research project, and that the assurance is to show that Christianity is no threat to Rome or to the Roman Empire, that it's not primarily a political movement, but a spiritual movement. So again, I hope that one more open-handed, but it does seem to kind of fit everything. Key contributions of the book. Man, this is it right here. Strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit. 57 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and we see it right out of the gate here uh, in verse 2. So in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so... What we find here in Acts, we're sort of introduced to sort of a new manner of how the Holy Spirit would operate in the world. Um, in other words, Acts does not give us the birth of the Holy Spirit, right? In Acts, we find the birth of the church. But the Holy Spirit has no beginning. He is co-eternal, co-equal, co-substantial with the Father and with the Son, a member of our triune Godhead. So the Holy Spirit has no beginning. He is present with God and active with the Godhead in creation itself. We can hear the plurality of the voicing, let us make, right? Let us make man in our image. We can also see right in the beginning of Genesis, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So the Holy Spirit doesn't have a beginning, but nor is the Holy Spirit, as we learn from Acts, nor is he retired, <laughs> okay? He's alive and well. He's alive and well today. He is still working today. In the Old Testament, we kind of find maybe a different economy of how the Holy Spirit works. Typically, we find him come upon a person, one person, sort of localized in a moment, in a time, in a place. Oftentimes, it's, it's the, the king of the day, the reigning king. You can think of um, King David and his prayer in Psalm 51. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, right? Because he was sort of localized on David in that time, in that place. But I'll also tell you this. That's a prayer you and I should never pray. That is a uniquely Old Testament prayer. Because as New Testament Christians, when the Holy Spirit takes up occupants and residence in our life, we are sealed in him. He does not come and go like he did in the Old Testament. He stays. In Acts, the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus, poured out by Christ, so that he doesn't come and go in our lives. Think of some of the words that we find in the New Testament for how the Holy Spirit operates with Christians. It's in him that we're regenerated, baptized, filled, sanctified, and sealed in the family of God. We're told that he is a deposit and a seal guaranteeing what is to come. And so in Acts, we get sort of this, this new economy of how the Holy Spirit is going to work with God's people. 
And this is what leads Jesus to say one of the most astounding things that ever came out of his lips for me. For my money, this is one of the most shocking things that Jesus ever said. You ready? It's John 16, 7. He's with the disciples. The movement is growing. Things are happening. And then he springs upon them. He's leaving. And they're like, where are you, where are you going? You can't come with me. And they're distraught. And so then he says this in John 16, 7. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. I want you to think about that for a moment. You've been following Jesus. You believe he's the son of God, the Messiah who takes away the sin of the world, who's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to turn the world upside down and set it all to rights. And now he says, I'm leaving, and it's good that I'm going away. How can that be good? How could that possibly be a good thing? And he goes on to say, unless I go away, the advocate, this is reference to the Holy Spirit, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this, the reason this shocking thing that Jesus says makes sense um, and is helpful to us is it shows us the incredible privilege that we have as New Testament believers of life in the Spirit. In other words, it's better for us now than it was for David. For David, one for whom the Holy Spirit could come and go in his life. But in our life, everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is regenerated and indwelt and empowered by the same Holy Spirit of God simultaneously. That's incredible. Whereas in the Old Testament, he was localized in a particular time and place. And the reason Jesus says, it's better that I go, is because, similar thing, Jesus is localized to a particular region, a particular time and place. But right now, the Holy Spirit indwells you and me here, and he indwells believers in Jerusalem. Same time. It's better. And then Christ pouring out the Holy Spirit of God, uh, again, just allows him to be all times, all places. So this is an incredibly significant portion of the book of Acts um, as we see the Holy Spirit is, is sent and poured out by Christ. Um, it's important as we look two directions. Number one, as we look backwards, it shows the fulfillment of God's promises, through, particularly through the prophets. And I'm going to read to you a couple of those really quickly here. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28, where it is promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams in the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then one more in Joel chapter 2, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. So we see that this was a promise. This was an expectation of the people of God that one day this would happen. So Acts shows us the fulfillment of this promise. It reminds us that God does keep his promises. We can take him at his word. But then as we look a different direction and we look forward... Uh, we see that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit provides the power by which we will carry out the mission of God. 
It provides us the essential power that we need. Let me say it this way. Being a follower of Jesus is not done in our own strength. It is not a matter of personal discipline or or willpower. Becoming a Christian, being a Christian, growing as a Christian, and sharing the Christian gospel with others all require the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Let me get even a little more provocative. There's not one person here in this room or not one person listening online that has ever led another person to Christ. That is uniquely the job of the Holy Spirit. We often think we're the agent, we're the one who does it, and we might use the Holy Spirit a little to that act. And it's just the reverse. The Holy Spirit is the agent, and we're the tool that he uses. So welcome to church this morning. Someone's going to ask you, how was it? It was great. What did pastor talk about? He said, I was a tool. I said, I was a tool of the Holy Spirit. You are. He's the agent, and he does use us, which is dignifying and honoring and kind of wonderful that he chooses to use ordinary instruments like you and me. But it is the Holy Spirit who saves and sanctifies and empowers us for service. Um, So we move on here. Let's talk about organization. How is this book laid out? Um, I think we get a really good clue from verse 8 here. And I, wanna, I just want to pause on this point. It is an incredible privilege of mine uh, that you guys remunerate me and set aside time for me to go to the scriptures and to study them intently, to bring your questions to them, to look at our cultural moment and see where we are, to suss out what's there, and then to proclaim those truths for all of us. That is an incredible privilege to me. And one of the ways I'm constantly blown away as I study the scriptures is just how many layers of organization there are in them. This is not a stream of consciousness writing kind of thing. There's detail and organization. We got some quilters in here. Any quilters? I know there's like two over here. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, the two of them raised their hands. Nobody else. All right. (laughs) This is just for the two of you then. But when you look at a quilt, there's all kinds of organization there, and it's at different levels. There's the color, there's the fabrics, there's the way the fabrics are cut, the way they're arranged, and then there's the quilting pattern over top, how it's stitched. And the scriptures are like that. So we could look at a lot of different organizational um, keys to the book of Acts. One person has said there's basically like six tiles that are all sort of separated, or six panels that are sort of separated with this common line that's set at each point, and it's valid. I'm going to keep it a little more simple for us, if you don't mind. I'm going to take... Verse 8, as really the organizing principle of the book. It says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They think it's a political thing. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Here's the organizing principle. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's the way you can look at the book. Chapters 1 through 7 show the church being born in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 show its expansion, how it grows into Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 to 28 show the spread of the church to the ends of the earth. Yea, even Fairbanks, Alaska, certainly the ends of the earth, right? 
This is the spread of the gospel and the rise of the Christian church, and this is a good way to organize it. I want to challenge you with something this week. Um, whenever we start a new book, I love to have you read the book in as big a sections as you can. So here's the challenge. Monday, tomorrow, read chapters 1 to 7, and then Tuesday 8 to 12, and Wednesday 13 to 28, and then do it again. And in one week, you will have read the book of Acts through twice, and you will have a great sense of the whole. And that is one of the quickest ways to improve your grasp of the scriptures is to read big chunks of scripture so you can get the macro, and then you can learn to tuck in all the micro things that we'll learn along the way. But overall, what this passage is saying is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is going to send shockwaves through the entire world. So let me close it up this morning here. I mean to give you some encouragement before we go. The Christian church has never been in danger of destruction or extinction. Not once. It has never been truly vulnerable. It has never faced a real threat. The Christian church is not this fragile thing teetering on the verge of extinction or irrelevance. It is old, but it is not antiquated. It is humble, but it is filled with power by the Holy Spirit of God. It has always, always, always been under attack, and yet it is enduring. And the confidence that I think we can have in its continual enduring is just what I started out with. How can we know this? Because Jesus made a promise to Peter. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And one other little thing that gives me personal encouragement is the image that Jesus uses to describe his care for the church. He refers to us as his bride. His bride. Such as his affection, protection, and devotion to the church, that he calls it his bride. So we find that the church is what was promised by the prophets. It is what Jesus came to earth to build. It is for the church that he died, that he raised, that he ascended, that he intercedes for us right now, and it is for the church, his bride, that he is coming again. I, for one, feel in very good hands. How about you? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the assurance that you give to us, whether it's in your words to your original disciples or the teaching by your Holy Spirit to these just before you ascended or the power that you sent and poured out in the Holy Spirit to take up residence and influence in our lives. We rejoice, Lord, to see the rise of the Christian church It gives us assurance in our own day when the news is bleak to see that it's always been dark for the church and yet the church shines as a brilliant light of what Christ has done. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful witnesses in the here and now. And we do pray as you taught your church to do. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for your return. May we be faithful until that day. For we pray in Christ's name, amen.